You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Support for Swindled comes from Claritin. It's that time of year again when I can barely breathe out of my nose. Yep, seasonal allergies. I have it all. Itchy eyes, congestion, sneezing. Luckily, there's a path to relief. Time to live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that will relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. And it works fast. Claritin's non-drowsy relief starts working in as little as 30 minutes. So not only can you get on with your day sooner, but you can do so without compromise. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Let's meet our second player, Michael Larson. How are you, Michael? Now, Michael, what do you do for a living? Oh, I drive an ice cream truck in the summer. I hope to win enough money here not to have to do that Do you have summer. it with you today? <laughs> you have the ice cream truck with you today? No, I didn't. Oh, uh, we had all kinds of orders we were going to take. What a day for it. Michael Larson was 34 years old and unemployed in Lebanon, Ohio. He drove a Mr. Softy ice cream truck part-time in the summer. But after losing his full-time job as an air conditioner repairman, he was getting by on his unemployment benefits and his girlfriend Teresa's paychecks. Michael wasn't lazy because he would go to great lengths to obtain money. He just did not enjoy working the traditional 9 to 5. Michael was born to grift. As a kid, he would sneak candy bars into school to sell to his classmates for a profit. As an adult, he took advantage of a local bank's promotion that was offering $500 to every new customer that opened a checking account. Michael opened numerous accounts under fake names until the promotion ended, and he collected $500 for each one of them. Michael Larson even created a fake business using a family member's name for the purpose of hiring himself as an employee and then laying himself off so that he could collect unemployment. And nobody ever found out. Michael Larson was always on the lookout for his next easy payday, and he thought he'd finally found it when the television game show Press Your Luck debuted in September 1983. The show instantly became the biggest, brightest, loudest, and most lucrative game show on TV, and Michael never missed an episode. In fact, he had seen every episode over a dozen times. In one of the rooms of his house, Michael had constructed an entire wall of televisions by stacking them on top of one another. He would watch them all simultaneously, with each one tuned to a different game show or infomercial. The televisions generated so much heat that the paint began to peel off the walls. Teresa would apologize to visitors for the mess and avoid prolonging the conversation by telling them that Michael was just crazy. 
But Michael Larson wasn't crazy. Michael Larson was a man on a mission. The concept of Press Your Luck was simple. In the first round, three contestants would answer some painless multiple-choice trivia questions to earn spins on the game's board. The board consisted of 18 squares that contained either cash and prizes, free spins, or a cartoon monster called a whammy that would strut onto the screen and bankrupt any unlucky player that it encountered. The spins collected by the contestants in the first round were then used in the second round, when a light would bounce around the board from square to square, usually accompanied with words of encouragement like big bucks and no whammies. Player would yell stop and smash a big red button, and the light would freeze on whichever square was illuminated at the time. Whatever prize the selected box contained was added to the contestants' winnings, whether it be a thousand dollars, a trip to Bali, or a brand new air conditioner. Although the lights appeared to move around the board randomly, that wasn't the case. The designers of the game had rigged the board so that a whammy would be chosen on every sixth or seventh spin. The lights and prizes moved in five different predetermined patterns, but nobody would ever figure that out. Nobody has that much time on their hands, right? Using a VCR to study the broadcast frame by frame, Michael Larson had discovered that the Pressure Luck game board was not random at all. He discovered that the board actually moved in five distinct patterns, and he discovered that there were two spots on the board where the dreaded whammy monster never appeared at all. With those discoveries, Michael Larson knew that all he needed to do was learn the timing of the board and the button, and he could rob the game show blind. Over the course of six months, Michael stood in front of his television with the VCR remote in hand, attempting to pause the tape in all the right spots. Michael practiced until he could accurately predict every move, and then one day jumped into his car, drove to the bank, and withdrew every last dollar from his savings account and bought a plane ticket. Michael Larson was going to Hollywood. One morning in May 1984, Michael Larson walked into the production studio where Pressure Luck was filmed. He told the show's contestant coordinator Bob Edwards that he was an out-of-work ice cream man from Ohio, and he was there to audition to be a contestant on the show. Bob Edwards admitted later that he immediately felt that something was off with Michael Larson. Something about the guy just rubbed him the wrong way. Bob told executive producer Bill Carruthers that he did not think Michael should be chosen to play. Bill disagreed, telling Edwards that Michael was a great sob story. A down-on-his-luck ice cream man trying to make it rich. That's good TV. The audience will love it. Michael Larson was scheduled to appear on Press Your Luck on May 19, 1984. On the Saturday morning of the taping, Michael Larson stopped at a thrift store on his way to the studio. For 65 cents, he purchased a light blue dress shirt to wear under his suit jacket. He wanted to make sure he looked presentable for his big moment on TV. Michael arrived at the studio's green room and made small talk with the two contestants he would be playing against, a dental assistant named Janie Leatris and a Baptist minister named Ed Long, the returning champion who had won over $11,000 in a previous taping. The three contestants were called to the stage to take their places. Michael was positioned in the middle with Ed on his right and Janie on his left. The director began the countdown and the cameras started rolling. Game of 
Press Your Luck began in typical game show fashion. Host Peter Tamarkin introduced the contestants to the audience by way of awkward small talk before launching into the first round, a round in which Michael Larson did not fare so well. He only earned three spins during the trivia portion, the lowest total out of all three contestants, and he landed on a whammy during his first spin of the board. The response of the board's button proved to be a little faster than the pause button on his VCR remote, so Michael made some timing adjustments and tried again. He landed on cash prizes with his remaining two spins and ended the first round in last place with $2,500. In the second round, Michael answered enough trivia questions correctly to earn seven spins, which would prove to be more than enough. After his first three spins of the board, he had won almost $7,000 and collected multiple free additional spins along the way. Michael was landing in the same two spots of the board every time. The first indication that something abnormal was happening. Stop! Stop at five thousand spins! Stop! Stop at a thousand in a spin! Stop! Stop at seven hundred and fifty dollars in a spin! Wow! Stop! Three thousand in a spin! Michael Larson went into an almost trance-like state, complete tunnel vision as he timed his every move. Every now and then he would exhibit brief moments of self-awareness and let out a nervous laugh, but he always returned to the task at hand. In the end, Michael Larson would spin the board 46 consecutive times without landing on a whammy. The host and his fellow contestants watched in disbelief. Michael's run lasted so long that the show ran out of time. It would mark the first time that a single game of Press Your Luck would be continued in a second episode. And that's not the only record Michael Larson broke. He won a sailboat and trips to Kauai and the Bahamas, and almost $105,000 in cash. More than three times the amount of winnings that any person at that time had ever won on any game show. In total, Michael Larson won $110,237 in cash and prizes, which would be worth a little more than a quarter of a million dollars in today's money. In the short interview after the game, Michael told the host Peter Tamarkin that he planned to use the money to invest in real estate and that he would buy a birthday present for his six-year-old daughter, Jennifer. I understand that yesterday was your daughter's birthday? Yes. What happened? I didn't have any money really to buy her anything. She's <laughs> she will get something now. Very nice. <laughs> like perhaps the state of Tennessee. Behind the scenes, the show's producers were scrambling to find an explanation for what had just happened. What Michael Larson had just accomplished was nearly statistically impossible. The chances of spinning the board over 45 times without encountering a whammy was less than one third of one percent. The producers were convinced that Michael Larson had cheated. Reminiscent of how Larson perfected his technique, 
Pressure luck producers and CBS executives crowded into a small room to analyze the tape of his performance frame by frame. They eventually caught onto his method but found no evidence of deception. They decided that Michael Larson relied on nothing more than pure skill. One CBS executive told the game show network that, quote, he had not broken any rules of the game, he had played fairly, and he was an eligible contestant. We paid him his money. He was simply smarter than CBS. After Michael's appearance on the show, CBS reprogrammed the pressure luck board to follow 32 patterns instead of five. Michael Larson returned to Ohio with more money than he had ever seen in his life. Besides a few television appearances immediately after his historic run, he retreated from the spotlight and he never got around to investing in real estate. Safe investments just weren't exciting enough for Michael Larson. No, Michael Larson preferred games. When a local radio station announced the chance to win $30,000 by matching the serial number of a dollar bill to a random number the DJ would read over the air, Michael Larson drove to five different banks and withdrew $50,000 in $1 bills. He and Teresa spent weeks combing through the money looking for a match, but never had any luck. And Michael never put the money back in the bank. Instead, he kept it stored in grocery bags that sat on the floor of his bedroom closet. The couple returned home from a Christmas party one evening to find that their front door had been kicked in. Their house was in shambles, and the grocery bags full of cash were gone. Michael Larson had lost all of his pressure luck winnings in less than two years. Soon after, Michael's girlfriend Teresa was gone too. She said that Michael blamed her for the robbery and became more and more aggressive and angry until she couldn't take it anymore. She left with the kids and never looked back. Dead broke, Michael moved to Dayton, Ohio and began working as an assistant manager at Walmart. But he soon grew impatient with the meager earnings and started looking for new action. He even called Pressure Luck to see if they were interested in having him back for a championship round. They weren't. If it was easy money Michael Larson was after, and it always was, he was going to have to find another way. In 1994, Michael, along with some business partners, created a nationwide telephone lottery game called the American Indian Lottery Program. They promised jackpots worth over $300 million, and all you needed was a telephone to play. Despite its name, there were no American Indians, nor was there a lottery. It was a scam from the beginning. And in a few years, Michael's group had cheated over 20,000 investors out of $3 million. When the FBI, SEC, and IRS caught wind of his scheme and froze his assets, Larson fled to Florida and successfully disappeared. He was finally tracked down about five years later when he reappeared in a morgue after he died from cancer. Fifteen years after his record-breaking performance on Press Your Luck, Michael Larson was dead, penniless and alone. In terms of game show scandals, Michael Larson's story is near the top, even though he technically played the game by the rules. The same, however, cannot be said about Charles Ingram, who made national headlines in the United Kingdom after winning the grand prize on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. A British Army major appears on a popular television game show and cheats his way to a million pounds on this episode of Swindled. 
private government officials, clear violations of federal and state law, pay to play against the taxpayer dollars that were wasted, paid tens of millions of dollars, more billion dollars, by falsifying its books and records responsible for the collapse of the entire system. In the troll of some kind of Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. On Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, just answer 15 multiple-choice questions and you can win £1 million. Pounds. You can phone a friend for help, ask the audience, I'll even help. Just call 0891 444444 and you can take part. Simple. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire starts soon, so make that call now. In September 1998, the trivia game show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire took the United Kingdom by storm. At its peak, the show was generating over 19 million viewers per episode. It was so popular that every week, one in every three Britain households tuned in to watch the drama unfold as contestants attempted to answer 15 multiple-choice questions for a chance to win a million pounds. One of those households belonged to Charles and Diana Ingram, a married couple of high school sweethearts from Westbury, Welshire. They had become obsessed with making an appearance on the show, Charles Ingram, at 39 years old, had just returned to civilian life from a NATO peacekeeping mission in Bosnia. He had joined the British Army's Corps of Royal Engineers in 1986 after completing a bachelor's degree in civil engineering and a master's degree in corporate management. He was promoted to the rank of major in 1995. It goes without saying, but Charles Ingram was a smart guy. But those who know the couple swear that the real brains in the Ingram family belonged to his wife Diana. Together, Charles and Diana were an unstoppable force of intelligence, and they were ready to put it to the test in front of the entire country. On March 24, 2000, Charles and Diana appeared as a team on a special couples edition of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, but failed to make it past the gatekeeping round known as the Fastest Finger, where contestants are given a question and four answers to put in a particular order. Whichever contestant puts the answer in the correct order the fastest gets to sit in the hot seat and compete for the grand prize. Disappointed with their performance, both Charles and Diana continued in their attempts to get a spot on the show. On April 9, 2001, Diana Ingram was selected to make a second appearance, alone this time, and she was the only one in her group to correctly answer the fastest finger question. How many got it right? Only one! Diana Ingram in 5.38 seconds! Hey, Diana! Diana flew through the early questions with little difficulty, but she became stumped on the 11th question, which asked for the name of who authored a poem titled The Hunting of the Snark. 
Diana went with her gut and answered Edward Lear. The correct answer was Lewis Carroll. She left the game with 32,000 pounds, matching the total won by her brother Adrian, who appeared on the show only months earlier after three unsuccessful tries. Diana's husband, Major Charles Ingram, would get his shot at the million pounds later that same year in what would become the most infamous round of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire ever played. Charles Ingram arrived at the set of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, focused and ready. He had done some last-minute cramming and received some tips and advice from his wife, who would be sitting in the studio audience. This is unimportant, but Charles also picked out one of the ugliest shirts man has ever witnessed to wear on the show. In the fastest finger round, Major Ingram found his way into the hot seat by correctly arranging the title of Agatha Christie's novel Death on the Nile in 3.97 seconds. Host Chris Tarrant welcomed Charles Ingram to the stage, introduced him to the audience, and referenced Diana's appearance on the show earlier that year. Well, I do remember when uh, Diana came on, she got 32,000, she was absolutely distraught that she didn't beat her brother. Yeah, she was. So are you now going to be like that because you didn't beat your wife? If you see what I mean. Well, (laughs) yeah. Your wife beat her. When Tarrant asked what he would do with the money if he won, Charles said he planned to buy a pony for his children to share. After a quick transition, the game was in motion, and like his wife and so many other contestants before him, Charles Ingram had no trouble answering the early questions. Questions like, which of these objects would you use to air your laundry? And what is butterscotch? After the first five questions, Charles was guaranteed to leave the show with at least 1,000 pounds, but that was nowhere near his goal, and it wasn't going to be easy. Major Ingram struggled with the sixth question, which asked about a British soap opera. In, I bet you know this one. In Coronation Street, who is Audrey's daughter? Janice, Gail, Linda, Sally. I really haven't got a Scoobies. Charles had never seen Coronation Street, so he decided to use the first of his three lifelines to ask the studio audience for help. The audience results were overwhelmingly in favor of the name Gale at 89%. Charles trusted their answer and doubled his money. The seventh question had Charles befuddled as well. He used the second lifeline to phone his friend Gerald to ask him which part of the United Kingdom could the river foil be found. Gerald was 99% sure that the answer was Northern Ireland. It's the right answer. You got four thousand pounds. Good play. Okay, Charles has got. Ah! God no. <laughs> oh God no. Gotta come back tomorrow. Yep, that's the great news, Charles. You're coming back tomorrow. You <laughs> love it. Time had run out on the taping. Charles would have to come back the following night to finish the game. His first night ended with four thousand pounds in the bank and eight questions left until a million. But most worrisome was that he only had one lifeline remaining. Producers of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire did not expect Charles to last much longer. They knew that historically, contestants that used two of their lifelines in the first half of the game typically lasted a few more questions at most 
before cashing out or answering incorrectly. But Charles Ingram had other plans. That evening, a 53-year-old college professor named Tequan Wittick received a call from Diana Ingram. Tequan and Diana knew each other from the game show circuit and had remained friendly. Coincidentally, Tequan was set to appear on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire the following night as a fastest finger contestant to compete for the spot vacated by Charles after he finished his game. It was evident to Diana that her husband was struggling and could never make it to the grand prize and knowing that Tequan Wittick would be sitting relatively close to Charles on the game show floor, she proposed that they work together. The plan called for Charles to read through all four answer choices of every question, and for Tequan, if he knew the correct answer, to cough when it was read. Tequan agreed, presumably for a cut of the prize money. When the game resumed the next day, host Chris Tarrant asked Charles Ingram, who was wearing that same ugly shirt for a second day in a row, if he had a new strategy. Charles admitted that he had played a bit too defensively the day before, and that he planned to launch a counter-attack. He planned to be a bit more aggressive. Charles claimed that he had talked himself out of answers that he should have known, even though at the time he openly admitted to having no clue. Regardless, it was a new day, it was a new Charles, it was the same shirt, and he wanted to be a millionaire. Question number eight asked for the name of the second husband of Jackie Kennedy. It appeared that Major Ingram knew the answer right off the bat, but he decided to take his time, reading off every answer choice methodically and waiting for a cough before finally settling on Aristotle Onassis. So I'll just rethink this one for a moment. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident it's Aristotle Onassis. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to go for Aristotle analysis. You're a wild and crazy man, Major. <laughs> final answer? You only live once. Um, yeah, final answer. Still very happy with the strategy? Uh, no, but it's too late. So. Ah. <laughs> it's the right answer. You got eight thousand Just a note, the coughs you're hearing have been enhanced for clarity. The majority of the studio audience wouldn't have noticed, and they would have been inaudible on the broadcast. It appeared that Charles was second-guessing himself when answering question 9, which asked for the origin country of Emmental cheese. Major Ingram sided with his first instinct and answered Switzerland, and he was right. This was the only question of the night that he would answer without assistance. Charles was now up to 16,000 pounds. Their plan was working to perfection, until it wasn't. Question 10 asked, who had a hit UK album with Born to Do It, released in 2000? A. Coldplay, B. Top Loader, C. A1, or D. Craig David? Do you know the answer to that question? Yeah, neither did Charles Ingram, nor did Tequan Wittick. As Charles read through the answers, no cough ever came. He was going to have to work this one out for himself. Charles said he was familiar with the title, but it was clear that he didn't know the answer. His instinct was telling him that the answer was A1, the British boy band. Charles said he had never even heard of Craig David or Coldplay. You could see the frustration on Diana's face during camera shots of the audience. 
Charles was forced to use his final lifeline, the 50-50, which reduced the answer choices from four to two. The two answers that remained were A1 or Craig David, which only reinforced Charles's original guess. He repeated that he had never heard of Craig David and put his head in his hands. And right as he was about to select A1 as his final answer, two desperate coughs from his wife Diana in the audience. Charles changed his answer, D, Craig David. And to prolong the suspense, host Chris Tarrant cut to commercial. When the program resumed, Tarrant attempted to retrace Charles Ingram's thought process, trying to make sense of how he arrived at that answer. Uh, use the 50-50, Coldplay and Top Loader went. He then went for A1. Then because... I actually rather lost the plot of his thinking then, but basically because he reckons most of his guesses are 80% wrong, he changed his mind, knowing he'd lose 15,000 pounds if he gave him the wrong answer, and went for Craig David, who he'd never heard of. He just won 32,000 pounds. Must have been a lucky guess. As the game continued, the coughs became more constant and obvious. It took two coughs from Tequan Wittick on both questions 11 and 12 for Charles to finally recognize the correct answer. If he had decided to walk away from the game at this point, Charles would have gotten away scot-free with a check of 125,000 pounds, but greed got the best of him, and he instructed the host that he wanted to continue playing. The next question asked what type of garment is named after 1930s British politician Anthony Eden. Another question in which Charles Ingram did not know the answer, and neither did his coughing assistant. As Major Ingram deliberated with himself over the answer choices, Tequan Wittick leaned over to Tom Lucy, a neighboring contestant sitting on the fastest finger panel, and quietly asked, What's that? Tom Lucy whispered to Tequan that an Anthony Eden is the name for a specific type of hat. Three Tequan Wittick coughs later, Charles answered correctly and won 250,000 pounds. Major Ingram was now two questions away from the one million pound grand prize. Have a look at question 14. Baron Hausmann is best known for his planning of which city? Rome, Paris, Berlin, Athens. I think it's Berlin. I think. <laughs> Charles immediately favors Berlin as his choice because Hausmann is a German name, and perhaps a bit too impressed with his own flawless logic, Major Ingram seemingly forgets to cycle through the answer choices. He never gives Tequan Wittick a chance to confirm his choice with the cough. So Tequan Wittick blurts out no, disguised as a cough, while Charles continued to mull over his decision. Take a listen. Sick is Berlin. Charles didn't hear it. He was still set on Berlin, but finally reads each answer choice aloud. Thanks to a well-timed cough from Tequan, you can see and hear the exact moment when Charles realizes that the correct answer is Paris. I rethink it. I don't think it's Paris. I think... (coughs) 
don't think it's Athens. I'm sure it's not Rome. I'd have thought it's Berlin, but there's a chance it's Paris. Chris Tarrant explains to Charles that he does not have to play and gives him one more opportunity to walk away with 250,000 pounds. If Charles answered incorrectly, he would leave the game with only 32,000. If he answered correctly, he would win half a million. After a total of four coughs and two nose blows from Tequan Wittick, Charles decided that it was worth the risk. Paris, final answer. You thought it was Berlin, Berlin, Berlin. You changed your mind to Paris. That brought you 500,000. Yes! Charles leaps out of his seat with excitement before Chris Tarrant reels him back in. The realization of what he had accomplished starts to set in as Tarrant hands him a check for half a million pounds. Charles Ingram was one question away from being a millionaire. If a contestant on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire reaches the final round, as Charles Ingram had, they are given an opportunity to view the final question. After seeing the question, they can then decide to answer or to walk away with the prize they had already won. The final question in Charles's game was as follows. A number one followed by 100 zeros is known by what name? Google, Megatron, Gigabit, or Nanomole? Predictably, Charles Ingram was not sure of the answer. His initial choice was Nanomole, which was wrong. Luckily, Tequan Wittick did know the correct answer. The answer was Google, a term in which Charles Ingram had regrettably told the host he wasn't familiar with. Chris Tarrant reminded Charles that he could walk away with half a million pounds. An incorrect answer would leave him with 32,000 and result in a loss of 468,000 pounds. Over five minutes of broadcast time had elapsed before Charles submitted his final answer. He could hardly stand the anticipation. He begged Tarrant not to go to a commercial break, but he was unsuccessful. Charles Ingram would have to wait a few more minutes to find out if he had just become a millionaire. When the show returned, host Chris Tarrant reached out his hand towards Charles and asked for the check. Charles, give me that check. 500,000 pounds. <laughs> you no longer have that. You just want one million! Major Charles Ingram, also known as the most amazing contestant to ever appear on the show, according to Chris Tarrant at the time, became the third person in the history of the British version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire to win the grand prize. Tarrant embraced Charles with a hug and told him that he was an amazing human being. Diana left her seat in the audience and joined her husband on the stage to celebrate. Buried underneath the cheers of the audience, Diana asked Charles, quote, How the hell did you do it? Of course, Diana already knew that Charles had cheated, and so did the producers of the show, who were already busy backstage trying to prove it. Support for Swindled comes from Simply Safe. When you travel, do concerns back home nag you? You know, did you lock up? Did you leave a window open? Did you forget a child? Things like that. I know I do. That's why I recommend investing in Simply Safe Home Security today. 
for award-winning security and peace of mind wherever your summer plans take you. Here's a true story that happened to me last week. I was out of town in an unfamiliar city in an unfamiliar room. It was midnight and I was about to fall asleep when I get an alert on my phone. Simply safe glass break sensor triggered. Not good. So I log in to view my cameras and I see a massive hailstorm pounding my house in real time. Long story short, I sent a friend over to take care of it. His night was ruined. I slept like a baby. Thank you, Simply Safe. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind. I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/swindled. There's no safe like Simply Safe. found surprising at the end of the complete recording you all go and have a, a drink or in my case quite a few drinks and he wasn't there and I'd have thought you know if I'd won a million pounds or if I won any sort of money I'd have been celebrating that's Maurice Braun he said on the fastest finger panel during Charles Ingram's game and he had found the majors post-victory behavior to be rather odd and Maurice wasn't the only one A researcher for the show met Charles in his dressing room after the taping and offered a celebratory drink. Charles refused, telling her that he had to go to work in the morning, and he asked her to leave the room. On her way out, through the closed door, the researcher heard what sounded like an argument between Charles and Diana, which she thought was a strange way to celebrate winning a million pounds. Meanwhile, back on stage... The contestants were battling in the fastest finger contest to see who would replace Charles Ingram in the hot seat. Long wait. Let's see who's getting in that chair. Most of them are Tequin Whittock in 7.08 seconds. Coincidentally, when it was Tequin Whittock's turn to play the game, his persistent cough had cleared up, although he could have used some help of his own. Tequin didn't even make it halfway through the game. He lost on the 8,000-pound question about meatballs. Before leaving the studio, Charles and Diana Ingram were patted down by members of the production team who made it seem like the search was a customary part of being on the show. Nothing was found, so the Ingrams were allowed to leave, but they did not have the million-pound check in hand. Celador, the production company behind Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, told the Ingrams that it would take a few days to process. In reality, Celador was buying time to review the footage from Charles's taping. Multiple members of the production crew had noticed the coughing while it was happening, but it was decided to let the game finish just in case there was nothing to it. It was theorized that Charles Ingram and his cohorts might have tried to use a system of vibrating pagers and cell phones to rig the game. A researcher for the show had reported seeing Diana Ingram's younger brother, Marcus Powell, outside of the studio on his cell phone during the taping on multiple occasions, which is a violation of the rules. The production coordinator was alerted, and Marcus Powell was giving the option to abstain from using his phone or to be escorted off of the premises. Marcus chose to return to his seat, and a Celador security officer was assigned to keep an eye on him for the duration of the recording. A few of the contestants on the fastest finger panel had come forward with their suspicions as well. One of them in particular, a man named Larry Whitehurst, found it strange that the cougher made no attempt to stifle the coughs as if they were intended to be heard. 
He claimed that he caught on to the pattern of coughs early on in the game and was convinced that Charles Ingram and Tequan Wittick had cheated. Sound supervisors for Celador analyzed the audio and isolated every cough, almost 200 of them, that happened in the studio during those two days of taping. 19 of the coughs, 18 from Tequan Wittick and one from Diana Ingram, were deemed significant and were directly linked to strategic moments of Charles Ingram's game. Analysis of the video footage provided even more evidence that Charles had cheated. Typically, family members who sat in the audience would either stare straight ahead at their loved one in the hot seat or glance up at the monitor for a closer look. The video footage of Diana Ingram in the audience showed her continuously looking down and to her left towards the fastest finger panel, towards Tequan Wittick, towards the coughs that would make her husband a millionaire. With undeniable evidence in hand, Celador Productions decided not to air Charles's episode of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and they refused to pay out the million-pound prize. Paul Smith, the managing director of Celador, called Charles at home to deliver the bad news. Mr. Ingram, we didn't meet. I am the managing director of Celador. Right. Um, I think I should just get straight to the point. Yep. And effectively say what is a pre-prepared statement here. I have to tell you that we have suspicions from viewing the recording of last Monday's uh, program and subsequently studying the tapes carefully that there were irregularities during the taping of the show in which you participated. Oh, good Lord, no. Because of that, I have to tell you that these suspicions have been referred to the police. Right. And thus, we, for not for the moment, will be airing the program or indeed authorizing payment of the check. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I completely refute that, obviously. Um, good Lord. Good Lord, I'm absolutely gobsmacked. All right, well, thanks for letting me know. Okay, thank you. Mm, cheers, bye. Charles Ingram's reaction to the phone call came as a bit of a surprise to the Celador executives. For a man who had just lost a million pounds over something that he claimed he did not do, and for a man who was now at the center of a police investigation, Charles Ingram had not put up much of a fight at least not on the phone. Charles would later file a civil lawsuit against Celador for the frozen prize money plus 240,000 pounds in legal costs. The lawsuit was dismissed. I didn't notice any coughing. I can't say that there wasn't coughing going on, but I did not um, either hear or use coughing as any form of mechanism for being able to answer those questions. I am innocent. At the end of the day, I did not cheat. Despite their claims of innocence, on July 31st, 2002, Charles Ingram, Diana Ingram, and Tequan Wittick were arrested and charged with procuring the execution of a valuable security by deception. The trial was scheduled for March 3rd, 2003, in the Crown Court of England and Wales. All three defendants pleaded not guilty. On the stand, Tequan Wittick admitted to coughing during his time on the show but attributed it to a combination of asthma, hay fever, and dust allergies. Wittick testified that it would have been silly to attempt to cheat the game, knowing that he was surrounded by cameras and microphones. Furthermore, Wittick claimed that he was actively rooting against Ingram because he wanted his shot in the hot seat. And he claimed that his cough disappeared after drinking several glasses of water during intermission, a claim that his personal doctor substantiated. Tequan Wittick was also asked about the phone call with Diana Ingram on the first night of her husband's appearance. 
Diana said the call was simply to wish Tech one good luck on his upcoming appearance on the show. Whittick's defense pointed out that the call lasted less than five minutes and asked rhetorically how a plan of such magnitude could have been arranged in such a short amount of time. Charles Ingram took the stand and asserted that he had known the answer to every question that was asked except for the final one, which he was able to figure out through a process of elimination using his skills in math and physics. Charles claimed to be unaware of the phone call between his wife and Tequan Wittick and admitted to being devastated when he found out about it. Charles Ingram was adamant that he did not hear any coughing. He was adamant that he did not cheat. And there were some people who believed him. A commander of the British Army served as a character witness for Charles. He referred to Major Ingram as a quote, an officer of the utmost integrity and complete honesty. No comment at the moment. Struggling to reach the front entrance, Major Ingram managed a smile. Their co-accused, Tequin Whittock, had a similar reception at the court in central London. Afterwards, Major Ingram and his wife left the court by the back door. The media once more in pursuit. The trial lasted four weeks in total and was delayed an extra day because of uncontrollable coughing from the jury. No, seriously. In the end, the defenses of the three accused were no match for the audio and video evidence that was presented. The jury found all three defendants guilty. Charles and Diana were fined £15,000 each, plus cost of £10,000 each. The couple also received suspended prison sentences of 18 months, which meant neither Charles nor Diana would spend a day in jail. Tequan Wittick received a similar punishment of a £10,000 fine plus $7,500 in cost and a 12-month suspended prison sentence. Wittick was also forced to resign from his position as a lecturer and submitted an application to trademark his name after he discovered that there was a cough medication named after him. A few months after his conviction, Charles Ingram found himself back in court over an insurance claim. In August 2001, the Ingrams applied for a £30,000 insurance payout after a burglary of their home. The insurance company discovered that the policy had been purchased only a few weeks before the purported burglary and that Charles Ingram had an extensive history of insurance claims that he, quote, forgot to declare. Charles was found guilty of two more counts of deception. After the very public trial in which the media nicknamed him Major Fraud and the Coughing Major, Charles Ingram and his wife Diana tried to return to their normal lives but found great difficulty in doing so. Because of his fraud conviction, Charles received a temporary administrative discharge from the Ministry of Defense. He was essentially forced into retirement and forced to live off of his pension. Charles would no longer receive a salary from the army and his family could no longer stay in the five-bedroom house that the government rented on his behalf. The Ingrams' financial situation continued to worsen until they were forced to declare bankruptcy in October 2004. However, court-imposed fines are not included in bankruptcies, so they asked a judge to reduce their fines from £60,000 to £30,000. This appeal was partially granted, even though the judge accused the couple of, quote, cynically manipulating their finances to avoid paying back the cost. In order to reclaim their lives, the Ingrams needed more than just financial relief. Charles, Diana, and their three daughters experienced abuse and harassment from the public for years after the scandal. 
In an interview with the Daily Mail in 2007, Charles detailed the acts of aggression and vandalism that his family had been subjected to. Quote, It is endless. Two weeks ago, a bag of vomit was thrown at the house. Two weeks before that, youths broke into the garden and smashed three of the windows. We've had nails and screws placed on the drive, cheat scratched into the paintwork of the car, and the wheelie bin is continually emptied over our garden. Last year, one of our dogs was kicked and punched by a gang of youths and later died. My wife has been surrounded by taunting gangs of youths shouting, cheating bitch. There was also an incident on April 30th, 2006, during Charles Ingram's daily jog. As he approached a group of kids ahead of him, one 13-year-old boy stepped into his path and coughed so loudly in Charles's face that spit landed on his lip. Charles flew into a rage and grabbed the kid by the lapels and told him, quote, You do that again and you'll regret it. The 13-year-old kid called the police and reported that he had been assaulted by Charles Ingram. And even though the teenager would eventually admit to exaggerating his story, Charles Ingram was found guilty of common assault, which led to him receiving an absolute discharge from the army. Around this time, Charles told a reporter that his family motto should be one step forward and two steps back. Quote, Just when I thought we were beginning to recover a bit from everything that has happened, we're plunged right back to square one and we have to start all over again. Life had become so bleak for Charles Ingram that at one point he had even contemplated suicide, telling a reporter, quote, I had 40 pills in one hand and a glass of water in the other. It was about 10.30 p.m. and I was in bed. Then something stopped me. My mobile phone buzzed. It was a text message from one of Charles's daughters that read, quote, We all have faith in you, Dad. Charles Ingram says the scandal has made him unemployable. He makes money by repairing computers for friends and acquaintances and spends the rest of his time writing novels. His wife Diana makes and sells homemade jewelry. The couple eventually found a way to take advantage of their newfound notoriety by appearing on reality TV shows such as Celebrity Poker Club and Celebrity Wife Swap. Not an ideal career path, but it was an honest living. As the first decade of the 2000s came to a close, so did Charles Ingram's celebrity. The last time he made headlines was in 2010, when he accidentally slipped on a rotten apple in his yard and severed two and a half toes with a lawnmower. Quote, I tried to avoid the blade of the mower, but it went over my foot. I was only wearing Wellingtons and it sliced right through the rubber. I remember seeing my big toe lying on the grass and thinking, oh dear. The episode of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire featuring Charles Ingram's scandalous run was broadcasted about eight months after its original planned air date, resulting in record-breaking ratings and viewership. Even though host Chris Tarrant testified that he had never heard the coughing in the studio that day, he referred to Charles's appearance on the show as, quote, a very cynical plan, motivated by sheer greed. As of 2016, Charles Ingram had only paid 1,240 pounds of the 25,000 pounds he owed all the while continuing to live in an 18th century cottage in Westbury, Wiltshire, all the while his children attended an expensive private school. The trials and the repeated failed appeals related to the cheating scandal have reportedly costed taxpayers more than £8 million in total. But that's none of Charles's concern. It's he and Diana versus the world 
quote, We have pulled together, not apart, as we try to work as a team. We have to, because really, it's just us. Swindled is written, researched, produced, and hosted by me, a concerned citizen, with music by Ethan Helfrich. For more information about the show, visit swindledpodcast.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at swindledpodcast. If you want to support the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com swindled. For five bucks a month, you will get early access to new episodes and exclusive access to bonus episodes. You'll also receive free merch sometimes. We just sent out free art prints to every patron that wanted one. Also, Swindle donates 5% of our Patreon proceeds to a different charity each month. So not only will you be supporting me, you will be supporting a good cause. Go check it out, patreon.com swindled. You can support the show another way by buying a t-shirt, a hat, a hoodie, or a beanie from swindledpodcast.com shop. We're adding new stuff all the time, so go check it out. Also, I want to remind you that Swindled will be at the first annual True Crime Podcast Festival on July 13th, 2019 in Chicago, Illinois. Come hang out with us and other podcasters from shows you love. For the entire list of shows that will be appearing, you can go to tcpf2019.com and there's also ticket and hotel information. Hope to see you there. That's it. Make sure you stay tuned to hear promos from other independent podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hi guys, I'm Simon. And I'm Matt. And together we host a podcast called, well, Heist Podcast, where we talk about heists. We go into the world of heists and the people behind them discussing heists in the news and the biggest, most famous heists from history. Historical heists, epic heists, movie heists, all the heists. You name it, whether it's stealing moon rocks, millions of dollars, or I think one time we even discussed meatballs being stolen from someone's garage. If you love to hear about the minds and the characters of the people who pull off these amazing heists, give us a listen. We're Heist Podcast. Check us out on Heist. Thanks to Simply Safe for sponsoring the show. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind. I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect Monitoring at simplysafe.com/swindled. There's no safe like Simply Safe.